You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Today we are beginning our summer series on the life of David. Uh, and uh, I want to get us going uh, with a little word association. All right, so help me out here. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, when I point at you, I want you to say the first word that pops into your mind, okay? I want to say it, don't be shy or, or cool or anything. All right, I want you to say the first word you think of, all right? David and Goliath. That's what everybody thinks of when they think of David. That is the most popular story that, in the life of David, his, his battle with Goliath. Most people assume that the David story starts with Goliath. Now, you did not think that we were going to preach about man-on-man, hand-to-hand combat to the death on Mother's Day, did you? Uh, we're in... Hand-to-hand combat to the death comes next week, uh, so come back, come back for that. So we'll look at David and Goliath uh, next week, but we're not going to do that on Mother's Day, uh, primarily because the story of David doesn't start with Goliath. It, it actually starts with a guy named Samuel, who's a prophet, and, and we're going to look at, uh, at Samuel a little bit in this, in this narrative uh, today. Uh, but before we do, I want to tell you about something that happened in my life uh, years and years ago. Um, my wife Amy and I had been married for like three or four years and we decided that it was time to buy our first house. And so we were searching and searching, trying to find the perfect house. You, you feel all this pressure when it's the first house. And that we finally found this house that we just, we fell in love with it immediately. It just, it seemed to have everything that we wanted. Beautiful hardwood floors, beautiful yard, fresh paint inside. Uh, they had updated the kitchen and there was this, actually this little fireplace nook in the kitchen you could sit there and it was like it was so awesome and we just fell in love with this house Amy had already emotionally moved us in uh, to the house before we even finished looking at it and uh, we just loved it and uh, as I was looking at I noticed a few things that kind of caught my attention I noticed that in in some of the bedrooms there were some little cracks on the the walls and the ceilings and so I yeah I called the realtor to to, to check check out you know and ask some questions about that make sure everything's okay there turns out everything was not okay there uh, it turns out that this house had had major foundation problems. In, in fact, they had had to pour 26 concrete piers around the outside of this house where you like dig into the, the ground, pour these giant piers to stabilize the foundation. So I called the foundation repair company to see about like, what, do you have like warranty on this work that you've done to this house? And I'm talking to the guy on the phone and right before uh, we hang up, he says, hey, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you this, But it says right here in the notes that this house has had so much damage that future damage should be anticipated. We were so bummed (laughs) because we had to walk away from that house. Things were not as they seemed. On the outside, it looked so beautiful, looked awesome, but it had major foundational issues that were going to be a huge problem. Things were not as they seemed. Like we had to have someone help us to see that house accurately, past the bells and whistles, down to the foundational issues. That's what's happening in this story today. Samuel, the prophet, is not seeing things accurately. He's not seeing things the way God sees them, which is ironic because Samuel is called the seer. In chapter 9, that's what they called prophets back then. 
He's called the seer. But we get to chapter 16 and the seer can't see. Like he's having a hard time seeing what God sees. And so God has to guide him. Like God has to help him see what he sees. God has to help Samuel along in his search for the true king because that's what Israel needs. Israel needs a true king. That's what we need is, is a true king. Now you'll notice that in this story that God is speaking throughout the passage. God is directing everything that happens in the story today with his words. And his words serve as kind of like little signposts, little indicators in the text that say, hey, here's what I want you to see, Samuel. Here's what I want you to see, God's people who are reading this. And so I want to look at three things that God says here and let them be the, little, the, the guiding marks, uh, the uh, guiding points of our, of, of our look at this text, okay? Because three times God says to Samuel, it says the Lord said to Samuel, and then God wants Samuel to see something in particular. Uh, he wants us to see something in particular. He wants us to see what he sees. That's the question for us. Do you see what God sees? All right, let's look at the first one. Verse one. Here's the first thing that God says. First Samuel chapter 16, verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected Saul from being king over Israel? So God comes to the prophet Samuel and finds Samuel grieving. He's in deep grief. And you get the idea that Samuel has been grieving quite a long time because God's like, hey, how long is this gonna go on, man? Like, how long are you going to be grieving over Saul? Now, let me back us up and tell a little backstory to, 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 so you can know why Samuel is grieving. Back in chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the, the leaders of Israel come to Samuel, the prophet, and say, hey, look, all the other nations have kings. We don't have a king. Give us a king. Like, a king to lead us, to go before us, to fight our battles for us. We want a king so we can be like all the other nations. Even though God had been their king, even though God had led them out of Egypt and slavery, even though God had fought all their battles, they're like, that's not good enough. We want a king like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. Isn't comparison just a killer? (laughs) Even nations compare themselves. Comparison gets you so focused on what you don't have that you miss the glory of what you do have. Israel had God as their king, and they're like, that's not good enough. We want a king like everybody else. We want a king we can see. And so in chapter 10, Saul is appointed as the first king over Israel. And Saul is this impressive-looking guy. It says he's the most handsome guy in Israel. He's taller than everyone in Israel. He's literally head and shoulders above the rest. And when Samuel appoints Saul king in, in, in chapter 10, he points to, to Saul and says, y'all see this guy? Do you see this guy? There's nobody like him. Like there's nobody that looks more kingly in all of Israel than this guy. He was the obvious choice. But things were not as they seemed. Right? Saul had these little cracks in his foundation they were going to start showing up and causing big problems. Little, little cracks in his character that actually showed up really quickly in the story. In chapter 13, Saul disobeys a clear command of God. And then he starts making excuses for why he disobeyed God. In chapter 15, two chapters later, he breaks another direct command of God. 
But what happens? He doesn't repent of his sin. He begins to rationalize his sin. He starts saying stuff like, well, I mostly ex- said what, did what God said, mostly, on, you know, kind of fudges a little bit. And then he tries to self-protect. He tries to make himself look better than he really is in front of the people. He's like, Samuel, honor me in front of the people so I look more godly than I really am. It's hypocrisy. And in chapter 15, God starts to grieve over the rebellion of Saul. And Samuel grieves along with him. It says in 1 Samuel 15, 11, that Samuel cried all night long over Saul. He cried out to God, all, have you cried all night long over anything? Why is Samuel so upset over Saul? Well, he's upset because the king had so quickly disobeyed God. The king who was supposed to lead the people had bailed on God's commands. Right? The, the, the king who was supposed to, to lead the people toward God had come off the rails. When you read the Bible, especially if you read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you begin to see that as the king goes, so goes the people. Typically, as, however the king goes, the people go that way too. And so if the king starts to come unraveled and, and stops following God, the people are not far behind. Like, never let somebody tell you that character in a leader does not matter. It always matters. Listen, competence in a leader is important, but it's the character of a leader that shapes the ethos of a people. I think Samuel is grieving because he fears for the people. Samuel fears that the kingdom is coming unraveled because the king is coming unraveled. And so we come to chapter 16, and Samuel is still grieving. He can't get over it. He's just mourning. He's lamenting. And so God comes to Samuel and says, hey, I want to show you something. I want to show you something. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him for being king over Israel? Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So God says, well, this king that y'all chose for yourself is not working out too well, so I've provided myself a king. Here's what's cool that you don't see in English. When God says in verse one, I have provided for myself a king among Jesse's sons, a more literal translation would be, I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. That word provide in Hebrew is actually the word to see. I have seen for myself a king among Jesse's sons. God is saying, I see a king. I see a king in Bethlehem. Isn't that cool? He's giving Samuel the gospel. I see a king in Bethlehem. Samuel, do you see him? Do you see what I see? We sing that at Christmas. Do you see I've got a king in Bethlehem. Don't fret, Samuel. I've got this. I'm not bailing on you. I'm not bailing on my people. I'm not bailing on my promises. I'm not letting the kingdom unravel, even though Saul is unraveling. I've got this. I've got a king. He's in Bethlehem. When you read this, how do you, how do you identify? How do you relate to how Samuel is feeling? Like, what are you fretting about in your life right now? If you're like me, you're fretting about something. 
you're anxious about something, you're upset about something, maybe you look at your personal life, the circumstances of your life, or you look at how things are going in our country, in our culture, or you look around the world, and it makes you grieve, or it upsets you. It makes you you feel like, man, this thing's coming unraveled. The kingdom of God is is being threatened. The rule of God in the world seems to be threatened. God says, hey, I got this. I see my king from Bethlehem. I got this. I've got a king. God tells Samuel, hey, go to Bethlehem. Tell the elders of the city that you've come to offer a sacrifice. Then invite Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice. And I'm going to have you anoint one of Jesse's sons as the king. Don't worry about who it is. I'll tell you who it is when the time comes. So Samuel goes. Look at verse 5. Midway through verse 5. And Samuel, he's in Bethlehem now. And Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, when they came to the sacrifice, when Jesse and his sons came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked on Eliab, who was the firstborn son of Jesse, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And now we come to to our second point. We come to the second thing that God says to Samuel. Look what he says to Samuel in verse seven because he wants him to see something else. Verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So Eliab, who's the oldest um, son of Jesse, is standing before Samuel, and he's not only the, the eldest son, he's also apparently the tallest son. He's a, he's a tall, strapping, good-looking guy. He's like captain of the football team kind of guy. He, he just looks very kingly. And, and Samuel is like totally swayed by him, and Samuel immediately thinks, well, this is, the, this is obviously the king. Let's get some oil and get some oil on that kid's head and get this thing over with because this is obviously the king standing here. See, Samuel is still not seeing what God sees, is he? Like, he's, he's just looking at outward impressiveness. What's the problem with that? Well, it might be that Eliab is Saul part two. He's the most impressive guy in the room, so anoint him. Saul part two, and God says, I'm not doing that. Samuel's full speed ahead. Let's get some oil on him right now and make him the king, and God has to intervene. God has to intervene. Sometimes God has to step in and save us from our self-appointed saviors, doesn't he? I read that this week and I just love that thought. Like that sometimes we have these self-anointed false saviors that we think are going to solve all our problems and God has to step in and say, no, that's not the answer. God intervenes here. He steps in. Look at verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God says to Samuel, Samuel, you're only seeing the outside. I I see the inside. Like, you're only seeing the external bells and whistles of how this guy looks. I'm seeing down to the deep foundation of of who he is. Uh, Do do you see what I see, Samuel, is what God wants to know. Eliab looks outwardly impressive, but things are not as they seem. Don't fall for that again, Samuel. 
you're a prophet, but you're not seeing clearly. God's assessment of people, of us, in verse 7, is that man looks at the outward appearance. That's our tendency. Isn't that still true 3,000 years later since this story was written? Isn't that still true? It's just as true in our culture as, as it was for Samuel in his culture. Maybe even more so. We may be at greater risk for just looking at the outside. I mean, look at how we choose leaders. We're not that much different than they were, than Israel was, are we? Like, did you know that in, in the presidential elections in our country since 1789, the tallest candidate almost always wins? I thought this was fascinating. In 2016, during one of the Republican presidential debates, Google decided to track searches, Google searches, while the debate was going on. And they tracked it, and the top search was not ISIS, it was not tax plans, it was not immigration policy. You know what the top search was during that debate? How tall is Jeb Bush? (laughs) What? No matter what he thinks, don't, no matter what's in his heart, no matter what his character is, is that guy tall enough to be our leader? Does he look like a leader? Look at how technology is training us to value images over ideas. Isn't it? It's, it's training us, like physically, to value externals over internals. Like we, we, we scroll image after image on Instagram and with each scroll it's cutting deeper and deeper grooves into our soul that are trying to say to us the most important thing in life is what is, how does this look? Like, how's that guy look? How's that girl look? How do I look? How's my house look? We're, we're training ourselves, aren't we? With technology. Like we spend lots of time on a site called Facebook and then we wonder, why are our Relationships more superficial than they used to be. Pornography is literally at our fingertips. And it, it is destroying our culture. It's, it's devastating for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons is because it's training people to look at people just externally. To look at people in exactly the opposite way that God looks at them. Because God looks at their heart. God looks internally. Look at how we spend our money as a culture. I mean, we spend billions and billions of dollars every year on things like physical fitness, uh, plastic surgery, uh, professional skills development, right? Not a lot of people are shelling out their hard-earned cash for, to, to, to pursue character development, right? You don't see a lot of money spent to grow in things like faithfulness, <laughs> integrity, kindness, other-centeredness. Why? Because we're so fixated on the external, Looks, abilities, personalities, competence. That's what we care about. And look at, I think this is even more convicting. Look at how we choose our spiritual leaders and how we evaluate our spiritual leaders. Can they preach? Are they a good leader? Can they vision cast? Uh, can they, are they good with people? You know what? You know what no one ever asks me as a pastor? Like ever? Are you praying? Are you treating your wife well? Are you moved by the gospel yourself? Are you loving people? Are you obeying 
God's word. Nobody ever, nobody ever digs into my character like that. I'm not telling you that to make you feel bad, by the way, because I, do I don't do that either. I don't ask people that either. Why? Because we assume if everything looks good out here and it's, it's kind of holding together, then it must be good. Everybody doing fine. But God looks at the heart. God looks at the character of a person. He's saying to Samuel and to us, I want you to see how I see. I'm not wowed by appearances. I'm not wowed by performances. I don't advance my kingdom. I don't extend my kingdom through human impressiveness, human competence, human talent, human power, human good looks. That's not how I extend my kingdom. And by the way, this is not saying that God is opposed to good looks. It's not like, well, you're pretty, sorry, now God is against you. That's not what it's saying. In fact, in verse, verse 12, we find out that David is, is very good looking, he's very handsome. So physical attractiveness is, is a good thing it's because it's a God-given thing. What this is saying is it's secondary. It's secondary and it's superficial, meaning it's fading. It's going away, it's not getting better no matter how much money we throw at it. But character, on the other hand, is not fading. It can grow and grow and grow and become more and more beautiful, right? Because the heart is primary. True kingliness is on the inside, is what God is saying. God says, I want you to see like I see. I'm looking for a heart that's willing to obey me. That's what he's looking for. Not a sinless heart, because there is no such thing, right? But a submissive heart that's willing to say, oh, I'm wrong, and I want to change. That's what God's looking for. Now, why is the heart so important? Why is it so important? Well, because when you get down to someone's heart, you're getting down to what they love, right? And when you get down to what they love, you're starting to get down to what they worship. And when you get down to what that person worships, you're starting to get to what controls their life, what, what controls the rudder on, on the ship. See, we really do follow our hearts, don't we? We really do live for what we love, which is why God cares about the heart so much. He says, Eliab, the firstborn, is not the one. I don't choose him. Uh, and then there's this parade of sons, and I felt the tension when Kelsey was reading it. Didn't you feel the tension when she was reading it? It's like this parade of Jesse's sons come before Samuel and the rising tension is like, who's, who's God gonna choose here? And, and Abinadab comes with and he's like, no, I haven't chosen him. And what about Shammah, the third son? Nope, not him. The fourth son, nope. Fifth son, uh-uh. Sixth son, nope. Seventh son, nope. And Samuel's finally like, man, what is going on here? There's no sons of Jesse left in the room and God told me I'm gonna anoint one of them. And so he asked Jesse, hey, is this all your sons? Is this all you got? And look at what Jesse says in verse 11. Look at verse 11. The father is honest here. Verse 11, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. Now the ESV, which I'm reading from, makes this sound nicer than it really is. What Jesse really says, well, there's still the runt, that's what, the, that's, what, that's what the youngest means. It means the, the tiniest one, the smallest one. Youngest can mean actually the insignificant one. Jesse is saying, I got an eighth son, but he's so insignificant that I didn't even invite him to the sacrifice. 
He's just out with the sheep. And I didn't even think, I didn't even bother to invite him. And Samuel says, go get him. We'll wait. Go get him. And we're not going to sit down until he comes. And look at what happens in verse 12. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he, he is the eighth son of Jesse, was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And now here's the third point. Here's the third thing that God says to Samuel. I love this. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Don't you love that? Samuel, you couldn't see the king. You know why? Because he wasn't in the room yet. But here he is. Anoint him. He's the one, the runt, the forgotten one, the insignificant one, the one that didn't even bother to invite. We don't even know his name yet in the narrative. Isn't that interesting? We think this story's about David. David hasn't even been mentioned by name until the last verse, verse 13. God is saying, Samuel, do you see what I see? This is my choice. The most unlikely son is my choice. Isn't that how God always does it? All over the Bible, he's always taking cultural norms and flipping them, right? He'll choose the, uh, he'll choose the, the, the youngest son over the firstborn son. He'll choose the barren woman to become the mother of nations. He'll choose the, the, the foolish to shame the wise. He'll, he'll choose the, the, the weak to shame the strong. He'll choose the least, the last, and make them first. Several times uh, as I was studying this week, I kept hearing David compared to Cinderella the David story to Cinderella's story. And I think it's a good comparison because David is just like Cinderella. He's left to his chores. He's not invited to the ball, to the party. And he's royalty. He, all along, he's royalty, just like Cinderella. You, ju- you just can't see the royalty yet. All the other brothers are invited to the party and they start wondering, oh, I wonder if I'm gonna be the honored guest at the party. David doesn't have that thought because he's not even a guest at the party. He's out with the stinky sheep doing, guess what, exactly what God wants his king to do, shepherding. That's what he's doing. But nobody, listen, nobody thought David would be the choice. Right? Not, not, not Jesse, not Jesse's sons, not even Samuel thought David would be the choice. But God gets everybody together and says, hey, I want all of y'all to see this. Everybody get in here. This is the one. This is my choice. Now, how will God turn this little, stinky, unqualified, runt shepherd boy into a true king? How is God going to advance the kingdom of God through this little guy? How will he do it? Last verse. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David, poured the oil all over his head, in the midst of his brothers, I love that, all his brothers standing around watching this thing go down, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Hold on to that phrase, because that's gonna, that, that's gonna play out in the rest of the David story as we look at it this summer. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. See, the spirit of God is what makes David the king. 
Not David's qualifications or competence or looks. It's the Spirit of God. And we see the Spirit of God bring a couple of things to David's life here. Number one, the Spirit of God brings the true heart of the king to him. See, it's not that David is better than his brothers. It's not like David's got this good heart and they've got just a bunch of rotten hearts. It's not like David has this intrinsically good heart that's better than his brother's hearts or even Saul's hearts. No, it's not, right? Because left to himself, we're going we're to see him do some awful things uh, this summer. The human heart left to itself is bent towards serving self, protecting self, using other people for our own benefit, disobeying God for our own benefit. And we're going to see that. See, God calls David a man after his own heart because God actually gives David his own heart. The spirit of God rushes upon David and begins to shape his heart. And we're just like David in this respect. Like we, feel, we might feel obscure, we might feel forgotten, we might feel insignificant, but through Christ, the spirit of God rushes upon us. He pours out his spirit on us and he makes us royalty. He gives us a new heart a heart that's beating alive to the things of God, it says in Ezekiel 36. A heart that actually, guess what? Wants to do what God says. It says, it wants to obey God, it says in Romans chapter six. It's a great thing that the Spirit does in our life. The second thing that the Spirit brings to David is trouble. And we don't like the sound of that, but it's true. The Spirit of God, it says in verse 13, I love this, the Spirit of God rushed upon David. Now, the the word for spirit is the same word for wind. The wind of God, the breath of God, rushed upon David. It's like a tornado. What do tornadoes do? They tear everything up. They disrupt everything. When David is anointed with the Spirit of God, his life is immediately disrupted. He is catapulted into all sorts of trouble and conflict. We'll see it next week in the next chapter. He's got to fight Goliath. Then after that, he's going to be pursued by Saul in the wilderness, really for the rest of 1 Samuel. He experiences trouble and trials along the way. Here's what we need to take from this. The Spirit of God upon us doesn't take the trouble out of our lives necessarily. It may bring more trouble to our lives, but the Spirit of God in our lives enable us to walk through the trouble, right? To walk through the trouble. When the kingdom of God is advancing, it will be opposed every step of the way. And if you are a citizen of the kingdom and you care about the kingdom advancing, you will feel the opposition. You'll feel the trouble. But the spirit of God is with you, just like he was with David. It's good news. Over and over and over again this summer, David's story is gonna point us to David's greatest descendant, to Jesus. When you read Matthew's gospel, it starts with a, Matthew starts with a genealogy. You know the first thing that Matthew calls Jesus? He calls him the son of David. Why? Because just like David, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in obscurity. Just like David, no one even imagined he would be a king. You know what they said about Jesus? They're like, isn't that like the carpenter's son? Isn't like Joseph and Mary's son? What's up with this guy? Like Jesus had no outward appearance. No, no, he wasn't a good looking guy. In fact, Isaiah says that the Messiah had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He wasn't impressive, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. But things were not as they seemed externally with Jesus. 
when Jesus got baptized, the, spirit, the heavens cracked open and the spirit of God came upon him, just like it came upon David. But immediately after that, the spirit of God led Jesus where? Into the wilderness to be pursued, not by Saul, but to be pursued by Satan himself. And then one day, about three years from then, we know that the king of the Jews would hang on a Roman cross and it would look like the kingdom of God had completely lost, had completely come unraveled because the king apparently had lost. But things were not as they seemed, were they? Because we knew that death can't hold that king and he came out of his grave and he ascended to the throne on high where he's reigning even now and he will come again to reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus is the true anointed one. The word anointed means Christ. Anointed one means the Christ. That's him. That's Jesus. David just gives us a glimpse into the life of Jesus. Do you see Jesus the way God sees Jesus? He's our king from Bethlehem. He's the one that has the true heart of God. Why? Because he is God. He's the king who was the most unlikely choice and who brings the kingdom of God into the world in the most unlikely of ways, through his own death and his own resurrection. And God says to us, do you see what I see? Do you see Jesus like I see him? Do you see him as the only hope for your life, for the world? Do you see Jesus as the only one who can make it possible for my will to be done and my kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven? Do you see him that way? May God give us eyes to see Jesus as he sees him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.